people of the revolution and welcome to another episode of the great futures podcast where we discuss topics related to environmental justice people's visions for what life could look like in a just world and how we will achieve those visions i'm your host gracel mcclure an undergraduate student studying environmental geosciences and sustainability studies at the university of minnesota twin cities i am also a climate justice advocate and an organizer with Students for a Democratic Society. In this episode, we will be discussing energy equity and the role of local government in energy decisions with Mercedes Goal. Enjoy. All right, Um, so if you could just start by introducing yourself, including your name, pronouns, if you're comfortable sharing uh, what you do and anything else. Okay. I am Mercedes Goal, she, her, hers. I have been the energy and sustainability intern at Metro Transit for two years now. Um, And I plan to stay on for a couple more as a temporary uh, full-time worker. What is the Met Council? Um, The Met Council is also, is like formerly known as the Metropolitan Council and it makes policies about transportation, water, and housing for the greater Twin Cities metro area. The council is composed of 17 members, um, 16 that serve a district and one who serves as council chair. Um, And the districts are just regions of the Twin Cities metro area um, and are pretty expansive. And I graduated from the University of Minnesota two years ago uh, with the environmental science uh, planning and management degree. Great. Um, so uh, when and how did you get started with this work and what activated you? I think I've always been interested in climate work, but I didn't fully get interested into it, like fully involved until college. Um, probably my second or third year in. I started as an engineer and then I realized I didn't really like physics or a lot of part of engineering, but I wanted to do something that dealt with energy and the environment. And then I learned that there's lots of other majors uh, besides engineering that you could do that in. Yeah, I don't like physics either. <laughs> um. Is there anyone who inspires you either in uh, your work or in your everyday life or both? Um, In my work, probably people who have worked in the sustainability field for a really long time. Um, Like my boss, uh, Jeff Freeman, he's been working in the field for decades. And the fact that he's like still excited about it and he's not... um, like bogged down by, I feel like a lot of, uh, like the hardships that it can bring, like people saying, people turning down projects uh, or people not believing in climate change, things like that. Like I would think that, you know, after decades of that, he might, uh, I don't know, just get more bogged down by it than he has, but he's not, he's still just as excited about it. And I think he uses a lot of humor in it, which uh, is helpful. Um, also, I think 
um, like learning what other cities are doing, like just keeping up on cool projects inspires me. Nice. So what exactly are you doing in your position? I am the utility data manager. I, so basically I keep track of all of the utility usage and cost. So all of our water, electricity, natural gas, uh, boilers, waste, all of that stuff. So basically just keep track of it. Um, if there's any amoralities or anything wrong, uh, notify who I need to notify and um, like make sure that we're reducing our energy. If a project goes in that's supposed to reduce energy, like a lighting project, just keeping track to make sure that it's meeting the standards they said they would. Great, that's cool. So a lot of Excel sheets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so now we'll get into a bit of the more uh, hard-hitting questions. Um, so how do you envision a just future? Um, a just future, I think, everyone's present and future needs um, are considered when making decisions. Um, everyone has access to transportation, healthcare, uh, employment, like clean energy, everything that they need to survive. Um, and I think once that happens, I think a lot more climate change work can be done as well. Um, I know a lot of the steps, some of the steps for combating climate change can involve like to some extent privilege, like a baseline of everyone's needs need to be met. Um, like if, if you're worrying about where you're gonna get your next meal, you probably won't care if it's local or organic or stuff like that. So basically just making sure um, everyone's needs are met and the sustainability includes like all aspects of our lives. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I agree. It's hard to, it's hard to jump into uh, solutions to climate change if people can't even have their basic needs met. So yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Um, how will we transition to said just future? Um, what steps do we need to take in order to get there? Um, I think there's a lot of different options to get there. What comes to mind is voting, voting in like local elections too. I know like a lot of energy decisions happen at a state or even just like the city council, like the city council actually makes a lot of decisions um, in our day-to-day -day life. Um, also, like just starting, I know like a lot of like research is being done and um, like a lot of advocacy and those things are all really good, but then also just like starting projects, I think. I think it's, it's hard to start. So just starting anywhere, I think is a good first step too. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Um, basically, I think 
a lot of people don't realize how big of a role local government actually plays in their lives. Like I recently learned about uh, public utility commissions and I had no idea that there were just like five people that decided on things for the state. And I didn't know that XL Energy, like the reason we had always used XL Energy growing up was because it was the only option because uh, energy companies essentially have a monopoly over small areas. Like I, it was so eye-opening. I was like, wow, I had no idea that this was how energy worked. Uh, I guess I just never thought about it. What is the PUC uh, or Public Utilities Commission? The Public Utilities Commission is a state level commission whose members are appointed by the governor and serve six year terms. Um, it focuses on decision making for electricity, natural gas and telephone. Um, in Minnesota, the commission is made up of five people, Katie Sieben, Valerie Means, Matthew Schroeger, John Tuma, and Joseph Sullivan. Their mission says the commission's mission is to create and maintain a regulatory environment that ensures safe, adequate, and efficient utility services at fair, reasonable rates, consistent with state telecommunications and energy policies. It does so by providing independent, consistent, professional, and comprehensive oversight and regulation of utility service providers. One of the key functions of the commission in performing this mission is to balance the private and public interests affected in each docket and to make decisions that appropriately balance these interests in a manner that is consistent with the public interest. Um, so states are broken up into service, service districts and a particular energy company or co-op um, essentially has a monopoly over the, that energy service, uh, over energy service in that area. For example, most of the Twin Cities is covered by XL Energy. Um, you can pay more in your energy bill to have a greater percentage of your energy come from renewable sources, or you can join a program like Community Solar um, or put solar panels on your own house. Because of the system, energy decisions are fairly local in scale or at the state level at most. Um, so like the federal government does not have control over how energy works um, in your neighborhood, in your city. Um, those decisions are li largely made by the company and overseen by the Public Utilities Commission. Um, so I think it's important, uh, an important issue in Minnesota right now is line three. Um, and the Public Utilities Commission plays, played an important role in um, approving this project. Um, so I just wanna go into that a little bit and describe what's going on there. Um, so line three is a tar sands oil pipeline owned by Enbridge Corporation that runs from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin, which is over a thousand miles. Um, it is currently in the ground, but Enbridge wants to build a quote unquote replacement because they say that the old pipeline is unsafe. I would like to point out that all pipelines are unsafe 
and a newer pipeline is not necessarily safer than an old pipeline. Um, what constitutes pipeline safety is management oversight of those pipelines once they are constructed. Um, and this replacement um, line, and the reason I put that in quotations is because the replacement goes through a completely different area of Minnesota. Um, and part of that was to avoid reservations. However, it still does go through treaty lands, um, which I will discuss later why that is an issue. Um, but it also is bigger than the previous line was, um, which is concerning. Um, why is line three harmful? Um, there are a lot of reasons why it's harmful. Um, and I'm just going to list a few, list and talk about a few of them here. Um, so first, the tar sands carried through the pipeline will contribute to climate change. Um, the operation of this replacement line would carry 273.5 million tons, 273.5 million tons of CO2. Keep in mind CO2 is a gas and gases don't, aren't very dense. Um, so that is a lot, it's a lot of CO2, um, which is the equivalent of adding 38 million vehicles to the roads or 50 new coal-fired power plants to the state of Minnesota. Meaning this project would erase any progress the state has made towards reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. So that's the first, that's the first issue that a lot of people have with it. The second issue is that man camps uh, perpetuate violence and contribute to the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, two spirits and relatives. If this is your first time hearing about MMIW, to SR, I would encourage you to do some more research on your own because I'm not going to go into detail about the epidemic here for a variety of reasons. There are resources in the show notes as always, but be aware that the content may be triggering for some. So as always, take care of yourself and your mental well-being first. Um, but I would also just like to point out that in February, two line three workers were arrested in a sex trafficking sting in Itasca County, Minnesota, despite Enbridge's claims that man camps have no, um, man camps are not harmful to communities. Third, um, the construction is dangerous for the workers, uh, in addition to being dangerous to the environment and the communities. Um, in December of 2020, a contractor working on line three died in Aitken County, Minnesota. Um, construction resumed the very next day within less than 24 hours. Yet Enbridge claimed that they enhanced safety in that time and, only, and they only provided grief counseling for the workers. This demonstrates a blatant disregard for life. Fourth, Line 3 passes through many lakes and through Mississippi River twice, including the headwaters. This water is used not only by those humans and non-humans residing in Minnesota, but throughout the United States, and it spills into the ocean through Gulf of Mexico. Pollution would disrupt ecosystems and human life along the entire length of the river and its tributaries and into 
the Gulf. Fifth, pipeline construction and its operation pose a risk to minoman or wild rice, a sacred food and plant to the Anishinaabe. Construction and the threat of a spill into wild rice lakes poses an extremely scary risk to the rights of Minoman to thrive. And sixth, line three violates treaty rights and indigenous sovereignty. The Treaty of 1855 ceded much of so-called northern north central Minnesota from Anishinaabe peoples to the U.S. government. These are off-reservation lands. Um, and included in the treaty are usufructuary rights or the right to make a modest living from the land, meaning indigenous peoples are allowed to hunt, fish, gather, harvest, and cultivate much of what is now the state of Minnesota. Line three construction would harm the ecosystems in treaty territory and indigenous peoples were not properly treated as a sovereign nation in decision-making. Um, so it's violating the their usufructuary rights given by the treaty. And they were not included in discussion um, or given the weight that their people should be given. Um, so those are just a few of the harms, but um, I wanna go into the role that the Public Utilities Commission played in the passing of this project. So the Line 3 replacement project went through various legal steps to get approved. The PUC was the final step and used evidence from Enbridge that supposedly proved the project was necessary in order to go through with the approval. Just last month in March of 2021, the Minnesota Department of Commerce argued in the Minnesota Appeals Court, um, Appeals Court that Enbridge failed to demonstrate that there is long-term demand for this oil, for this carbon. Enbridge has often argued that if they build it, the demand will come. However, that fundamentally goes against the capitalist notion of supply and demand. That is not how the free market works. During this hearing, the court also heard arguments that Enbridge failed to adequately show how a spill would affect the Lake Superior watershed. Overall, the concern is that when this pipeline replacement, also just a note, I keep saying replacement and every time I do, I am saying that with a bit of sarcasm and quotations around it because it's clear that this project is not just a replacement. Um, so overall the concern is that when this pipeline replacement um, project was approved, Enbridge did not do a thorough examination of the environmental impacts and the long-term demand for the product being pumped through the line. The appeals court has 90 days from the date of the hearing to make a decision, which leaves us waiting until June. They have the power to stop construction and reverse the approval of the project. So there's a lot weighing on this decision. In the meantime, folks are continuing to resist the pipeline in peaceful ways um, and are met with militarized police funded by Enbridge. But that is beside the point. And if you are interested in that, you should check out episode six um, with Emma Yella, where we talk about um, policing. And finally, I just wanna say that the line three replacement project does not allow us to transition away from fossil fuels. It is not renewable and it is not equitable. Um, so, so what does renewable energy and energy equity look like? 
In summary, we need to fundamentally change our energy system in order for it to work without and beyond fossil fuels. Um, I wanna go over a few key terms that I will be using um, and that are commonly used in energy equity literature and in climate justice. Um, so first is energy democracy, um, which is community controlled energy systems. It is decentralized, is the decentralization and localization of energy that comes with the downfall of corporatized and centralized energy. Energy democracy focuses on stewarding the planet and protecting the people as its key goals. Then we have energy equity, which analyzes the affordability and accessibility of energy resources with a focus on how that differs between different social groups, such as race, class, region, etc. And finally, we have energy security, um, which is similar to energy equity in that it incorporates affordability, but it particularly focuses on the continuance of the energy system, or in other words, to make sure that energy is uninterrupted and always available at an affordable price. Um, so I have two examples of ways that we can approach renewable energy and energy equity. First is solar for all, which was a bill introduced um, to the California legislature by the California Environmental Justice Alliance or CEJA. Um, it is a case study for decentralizing our energy systems, for localizing and democratizing energy. Um, Servas and Gianna Catero, um, Servas and Gian Catarino, Servas and Gian Catarino describe the bill as a massive transformation of our energy system away from natural gas power plants and oil extraction and into an energy economy rooted in local, decentralized, renewable generation, equity and community leadership. The bill was not passed due to intense lobbying by big fossil fuel companies, a barrier that is often faced um, in energy equity, before the final vote on the California Senate floor. Um, so the bill was passed by the House and two Senate committees. But then as it was being passed, the fossil fuel companies were lobbying with politicians in the Senate because they were scared it was going to pass um, and threaten their bottom line. So uh, it was not passed. Um, so the future of the bill had looked promising until it was shut down by the corporations, hoping to protect their bottom line instead of people and the planet. Um, as a second example, I would like to talk about green zones um, being a popular proposal for energy equity. These zones are areas where the most impacted communities are given the financial and technical resources for energy democracy. There are several components outlined in um, Servas and Gian Caterino's chapter of energy democracy, um, which as always will be in the show notes. Um, so first is identifying green zones where the community is marginalized and overburdened by industrial pollution. Second is reinvesting in those communities. Third is prioritizing local initiatives that allow local residents to stay instead of forcing them out. 
Fourth is providing necessary resources so that the transformation is sustainable without continued intervention. Um, and fifth is establishing democratized decision-making practices in the community. Um, I think it is important to note that um, the East Phillips neighborhood is a Minneapolis green zone. So right here locally um, to where I am from. Um, and if you are interested in learning more about that, you should check out the episode with Michelle Garvey, um, where we talk mostly about labor, but we touch on some local issues as well. Um, so these are both important ways in which we can give more power to the people who are impacted first and worst and who have been repeatedly disenfranchised. And these are the ways that we can achieve a just energy future. Um, has the pandemic changed your perspective at all? I think that's like one main thing I have learned like working in local government that it's like, it, it can just be like a few people that you wouldn't even think of that are making these big decisions. Like it's not just like Congress or the president that they help and they like set kind of like kind of like the values and the goals like that we should be heading towards but it's really like local people who are deciding if it actually happens or not so uh yeah i think well it's changed my perspective i think that there are more resources than i think i originally thought we had access to um like going back to making sure like everyone's needs needs are met um, that like when it comes down to it, we can supply um, like money and like basic healthcare. Um, well, to some extent, basic healthcare, the shots and stuff, but the vaccines, but um, just the fact that there are resources available that I think I originally thought um, weren't. Also, just for, for Metro Transit, um, there's some things that we've implemented because we've had to that we've talked about in the past, like working from home. I know like that has been discussed before to lower emissions of people like coming and going to work. Also, meetings. A lot of me and my boss used to either take the bus or sometimes have to drive to a lot of meetings. And a lot of those were like sustainability meetings. So then we would kind of talk like, okay, so we're talking about trying to get our agencies to decrease miles, yet we're meeting here. Like we should do online meetings, but we like always talked about it, but never really did it. And now that we had to, I think that's probably gonna stay. So I think both both of those things were talked about, but we're just never, it seemed like a too big of a task, I think. So I think there's a, a lot of things that we thought we couldn't do and and we did and it was fine. So I think it changed in that way. Um, then last question, um, how would you suggest that people get involved in um, environmental justice, environmental science, climate science work? Um. I would recommend, especially right now, just trying to incorporate 
it into things they're already doing. Um, I know at least for me, I have definitely had like some uh, like COVID, not actual COVID, but like COVID fatigue of just like, you know, it's been a really hard year, like adding, adding stuff to people's schedules seems like it's a pretty hard task. It's pretty hard to just do what we have to do already. So I think just incorporating things that you're already doing. So if you listen to podcasts while you do your dishes, throw on one with the topic of climate change. Um, when you're replacing products um, by sustainable, I just bought this laundry detergent that's like condensed and it's like really small. It's only like 12 ounces and it's supposed to do like 70 loads. So just things like that, because sometimes it can feel overwhelming, like oh, I need to get rid of everything and start over like have all sustainable project products but um or you know like if you're gonna go do curbside pickup turn off your car while you're waiting just little things like that um and also know that you don't necessarily have to work like like my job is very like energy and sustainability intern like it, it's it sounds very climate changey um but that you can incorporate it in anything you do. Like my sister, uh, she's a food scientist and she's been doing some research on um, like what to do with the byproducts of the products she makes. Um, my dad works in contracting and he's been looking at some different like types of material. So just knowing that you don't, it doesn't have to be like so, so obvious, I guess. Like there's ways to incorporate it in everything. That's a really cool answer. And it's very different from other people I've talked to. So thanks for that. I just want to give a big thank you to Mercedes for sharing your experiences, thoughts, time, and work with me for this project. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Great Futures podcast. I hope that you enjoyed yourself. As always, I encourage you to look into some of the topics covered on your own, check out some local groups doing great environmental justice work, and get involved in whatever interests you. Listening to this podcast is a great starting point into the movement and larger conversations, which is why I give you so many resources to look into. Disclaimer, all of my asides are based on my research and do not necessarily reflect that of the person I interviewed. All of my sources can be found in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.